This is Friends of Foster Care, a podcast sponsored by Fostering Hope Catawba. Fred Rogers said, We live in a world in which we need to share responsibility. It's easy to say, it's not my child, not my community, not my problem. Then there are those who see the need and respond. I consider those people my heroes. Our host, Leanne Setliff, is a seasoned foster parent hero in Catawba County through the Department of Social Services. Over 26 children have found a home with her and her husband. Two of these children they adopted. Now, Leanne is on a journey to tell the story of fostering children in Western North Carolina. It's certainly not always easy, but we are in need of heroes chronicled here to show that we are part of the solution in our community. Let's listen in. On this episode of Friends of Foster Care, we are excited to not have not one, but two guests. Um, guest Ed Morales is here today, um, and he is joining us um, because of the sixth annual Connect, Expect, Reflect post-adoption conference that will be held through the post-adoption success coach here in Catawba County virtually. This is a conference that um, has been held for the last five years. Um, usually it's in person and this year it will be virtual. And so Ed is going to be one of the speakers of that conference. So we are excited to have him here with us. So Ed, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me today. Um, and Lauren, my friend Lauren, um, is going to co-host with me today. Um, and so Lauren, um, do you want to introduce yourself before we start? Sure. Um, so I'm one of Leanne's friends um, and also a social worker um, that I work um, in Caldwell County and I'm currently a school social worker and I work at a alternative school and day treatment program. Um, and so, well, well I um, am on this podcast because whenever Leanne was sharing like, hey, we've got like an out of state person coming on the podcast. So I was like, cool, who is it? And um, Ed, we pulled up your bio and I was reading through it and I was like, this just sounds like my kind of person. <laughs> <laughs> this another social worker background with school social work. And just whenever I was kind of reading through your credentials, like I'd love to talk to this person. And Leanne wow. was like, great. Do you want to come on the podcast and talk to him with me? Like, sure. Why not? So Perfect. here Perfect. I am. Um, and so just with social work and then especially people that are connected to the trauma informed movement and to foster care adoption, just things that I'm also passionate about. I, I just like talking to people and hearing their stories with that. Um, so it's like, I would like to hear more just about your background, your journey through social work, um, and then eventually where it ties into foster and adoption, and then you coming to our conference virtually. <laughs> um, so if you just want to start with why social work? What, what brought you to the social work profession? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. Why social work? Uh, mostly for the money and the fame and the glory. Um, no, definitely, definitely not those things. They're, they're not haven't happened yet. Uh, you know, my my family is kind of comes comes from a helping profession lineage, I suppose. My mom, uh, my parents both served in the military for a long time. My mom was a nurse and she was a nurse in Vietnam. And then she retired from the army and was a public health nurse for a long time. And although, you know, we didn't really talk about it that much, it seemed like um, as I reflect on it now, 10 or so years into the journey, um, I think a lot of it sort of rubbed off on me as it will. You know, she would work with families. We were in rural Washington state. We worked with a lot of families who were under-resourced, who didn't have a whole lot in terms of um, the things they needed. And so she would talk about those things and sort of the poverty she saw as a public health nurse. And I imagine that sort of just sort of filtered down by osmosis and um, inspired me to do some of the work that, that I do now as a, as a social worker. Okay. No, that's funny. You said a lot of it was with 
um, your mom is a nurse because my mom is a nurse as well <laughs> um, that like specializes in public health. And so it's the same thing where a lot of times I feel like she was trying to get me to be a nurse as well. But I was like, yeah. I don't do blood and bones, but I can yeah. really get into some mental health. So that's kind of like, you know, where I veered off into that. I really wanted to be a doctor until I took biology in college. And then I realized that there was no way I was going to be a doctor <laughs> because I couldn't mitosis my own. I don't know, man. I, not me. That's just not me. Um, and then said the the initial connection that I was seeing um, that I said just caught my eye was school social work so was was that kind of your first gig or um, what got you into school social work um, what it was my first gig it wasn't meant to be you know when I came to school the the school of social work as an MSW student I like quote unquote knew that I wanted to work in domestic violence and specifically like perpetrators of domestic violence. I don't know why I thought that. I don't know how I got that in my head, but that's what I wanted to do. And then our, our field liaison, like the field coordinator who coordinates all the internships said, give me a piece of advice. And I, it's the best piece of advice I think I got as a social work student. Um, and she told us to take an internship our first year in an area where we had no interest in, in an area we couldn't imagine seeing ourselves working, we never thought about before. And that's what I did. Um, so I took an internship in schools and uh, like I'd never thought about kids before. Like I knew they existed somewhere in the periphery of society, <laughs> but like that I never thought about. It. And so I took it and I fell in love with it, almost immediately fell in love with, with the work of school social work. And did that for about seven years in different capacities in different schools. Um, but really loved it. And that's, that's actually how I met my kids who I eventually adopted um, was doing okay. social work. So one of uh, the questions I was thinking that I think would be good to, to share with the listeners would be as someone that has been in school social work and then a school-based therapist, what sort of advice would you give to foster and adoptive parents about working with those in the school system? You know, that's, boy, that's a great question. And I think a really hard thing for so many families to, to deal with, um, whether they're in a foster adoptive system or not. I mean, challenging behavior is a really hard thing for our schools to navigate. Uh, and then we add the complexities of working with families who are impacted and touched by foster care and adoption and, and the kids in particular. Um, you know, the biggest thing that we've had to fight for, I think, for my kids, so my girls are older, uh, a 20 year old and a 15 year old. Um, and they joined my family later on in life. Uh, they were older when, we, when I adopted them. Um, and so we were doing less of like the, you know, early on, there's a lot of family tree assignments in schools and family tree assignments are like the bane of an adoptees or even a kid in foster care's existence because they're just so complicated. There's so much depth and layers. There's so much pain and teachers are typically just not equipped to think about that. They're just like, oh, there's no family tree. It'll be fun. No, it's not fun for a lot of kids in foster care and adoptive care. So we passed all that by the time my girls came to live with me. Um, but then we're working on challenging behavior. So really trying to help schools understand the things that we talk about all the time, trauma, how it shows up, and that the behavior that shows up in school isn't necessarily because my kid's just being a jerk. It's because there's all this stuff that's stacked up uh, that's impacting her ability to be successful in schools and really trying hard to get them to see her as an individual who, yep, has challenged behavior, but is also so much more than just the behaviors. Um, so, you know, I think that's that's really common for a lot of foster and adoptive families is like navigating that um, as we're trying to navigate it at home. Uh, so I, I guess that's what I, you know, that's one of the things that I worked on the most for sure. Yeah, um, just getting to see them as individuals beyond just if there's behavior things, but then to be aware of unexpected school triggers Absolutely. Um, that I know, especially whenever it's um, yeah, a lot of but like the thing that I think of as like every year rolls around and people are talking about like, oh, Mother's Day, we're going to do Mother's Day cards yeah. and crafts and things. And there's a whole lot of kids that they're- well, gosh, any holiday, right? Yeah. Mother's, Day, Mother's Day and Father's Day, such big ones, but Thanksgiving, Christmas, mm -hmm. I mean, all these things, like where are you going to go with your family for Christmas vacation or some of it? It's like family is a really interesting thing, right? So my girls, they don't call me dad. They call me Ed. Right, that's who I am. And so it's a very, just a very different thing. And when the school, for example, would call me to the school because my kiddo was having a hard day, that was a hard thing for her because it's like, well, this is this guy who like takes care of me, but I don't know if I really like it all the time. And it's just all this complexity that's really hard to navigate. And I think is frankly exhausting for a lot of school staff because it's just like, whoo, okay, that's a lot there. 
Yeah, um, that one of the, the main things that I kind of, you know, teach and preach on with school staff or whenever I'm working with interns in my school is family inclusive language, but even beyond family where there are so many kids in our school that are not living with biological parents. Right. And to not necessarily say like, oh, if there's like paper to take home here, take this to your mom and dad. It's like, right. that might not, you know, be the case. So, you know, take this to your family or take this to the adults you live with, you know, take these to yeah. the adults that take care of you. <laughs> Just to be more neutral and inclusive across the board that. with that. And ask the question, right? What, you know, like, even even when we work with folks who are adoption competent, they'll still call me like the, the professionals will call me dad and my wife mom. And it's like I totally get it. It's a really nice impulse, but that's not who we are. <laughs> I'm Ed, like we're parents and I love my girls and like totally I'm I'm in it to win it. But like what we prefer is if somebody says, Okay, so what do you call this guy? Like who is this person to you? And I can say, Well, I'm Ed, uh, and you know, not dad or anything like that. And that really helps navigate not only just like honors her position and her idea, my kids' ideas about who I am, like we can hear your voice, but also helps us just like have to not deal with them. We have to go home and like, yeah, it was weird. They called me dad again. I know like that's just a lot for family over and over again. So I love that, like that really inclusive language, being curious about those things, such a big deal, absolutely. Yeah, so for school people to just know, like, you know, ask, you know, who do you live with? And then when you're meeting families, just like, what do they call you? And to be able to, to model that language and match it. Absolutely. Okay. Love it. Um, so it kind of was going into this, um, so like the flip side. So you've been on the school personnel side and then the, you know, foster adoptive parent side. Um, so then um, what, say, so what should, like the school personnel be knowing about the other, like I've gotten all like tangled now flipping it. What should the, um, the what, what do the school personnel need to know to um, like honor and respect them? And then what should foster and adoptive families not necessarily assume about school personnel? Boy, those are two tough questions. Um, you know, in terms of what, what school personnel I think should know is, is just like, things are tough. <laughs> things are complicated. Parents are over, I mean, parents who like created their kids, like made their kids get overwhelmed a lot. We get overwhelmed a lot too as foster and adoptive parents. And um, oftentimes, you know, one of the things that I would have to talk with our school staff a lot is that academic attainment and achievement is not always their first priority. Our first priority, especially with older child adoption, is often family. We got to work in this family, this relationship thing, because my girls are only going to be with me, like, until they're 18 for, let's see, my oldest was uh, 16 when she moved in, and my youngest was 11. So that's between two and seven years, and then they're, like, theoretically launching. We got to get a lot of work done in that time. And so if that means that, like, math class is, like, put to the side, and we're going to invest more in our social-emotional wellness, that's what we're going to do. And I'm going to support her on that. Um, so that's one thing, like really understanding of what the family's goals are. Like, I want my girls to go to college. I want them to be like, I want them to get master's degrees and be done, whatever they want to do in life. But there's so many things that are more important to their long-term success, I think, than that stuff. Like, we'll do all that. But first, we got to get this relationship down. And that's that's a struggle. Like, we, so it's been a hard, a hard road there. Um, in terms of like parents and school staff, I, you know, I... The, the thing that I had to think about the, a lot is it's just this like this conflict between the school has many kids. I have one kid and there's always this, there's this conflict there around like the school will say, well, we have to set an example. We have to do this for all the students. And it's like, you know what? I only care about one student. My wife and I fight about this too, uh, because I'll say this, like, I only care about one student here and it's my student. And my wife is like, yeah, but you got to remember it. I'm like, I don't care about that. I got one kid here uh, and I can barely keep on with this one kid. You know, and so trying to keep in mind like that, I guess, that there are lots of students, they probably don't have enough staff, they probably don't have enough training, they probably don't have enough time to sit together really without students there and talk about what's going on. And they're doing the best they can, they're well-intentioned. Um, and oftentimes they're just like, you know, overwhelmed just like we are, I suppose. I would find um, that it's also a time to ad advocate, but also educate the teacher. So um, my daughter, um, my adopted daughter is a kindergartner and she, um, has a great teacher, but that's her first year teaching. Um, yeah. 
So um, we were a little hesitant. Um, we were like, do we tell her that she, you know, do we tell the teacher she, our daughter's adopted or what? And we ended up deciding to, for two reasons. Number one, so when the family tree came up, that it yeah. was not a kind of like number one. Number two, so that the teacher um, was a little bit more cautious about what language she used, like y'all talked about, but three, so that we could advocate and so we could say, right. if you have questions about adoption and what this looks like, please let us know. So have you ever experienced um, helping educate a teacher um, as you're yeah. in their class? That's a great question. Uh, I mean, I don't know about around adoption specifically. As a school social worker, I did that a lot for sure. So I started this journey when I was still a school social worker. I don't do that work anymore. But I, you know, I remember even having a principal that I worked for. And we had a kiddo who was a ninth grader who I'd worked with a couple of years. And she was pretty challenging. Like she, when she was up, when she was like happy, she was really happy and wonderful and funny. But when she was not, she was not. Uh, and she was an adoptee. The ninth grader was an adoptee and the principal was an adult adoptee as well. And I remember sitting in my principal's office one day and she said something along the lines of, well, I don't really understand this because I was adopted and I turned out like I'm doing okay. And so it's hard for me to understand why, why this student can't do well. And like, that's an adult adoptee talking about another adoptee. And so like, even within that community, there's like confusion and like misunderstanding about how things work. Um, so yeah, I mean, every year in Minnesota, we have the NEA conference. It's the Midwest Educators Associate, Minnesota Education Association, I think is what it's called. And um, I'll present there often around uh, working around adoption in school settings and a more like conference -y sort of way. Um, I think to do that work, which is awesome work, and like you really have to build a relationship with teachers because it's so vulnerable. Like have a teacher admit that like, I don't know this, I need to learn this. If you got a teacher like that, that's really amazing stuff. I don't know that I've experienced that as much, unfortunately, or maybe I'm just too overbearing, I don't know. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think relationship with teachers, like making sure that we're aligned, like you're doing well teacher, my kid wants to do well, let's see if we can join together on this and see how we can adjust this to make sure everybody's doing as good as they can maybe. Um, but I don't know. It sounds like you have more experience with that than I do, honestly. Well, I, it's been a hard year to have a kindergartner because I feel like I don't, oh my gosh, because of COVID I, I, I have been into the school building once. So that, that relationship piece is hard, um, this year particularly, but, um, it seems like this year I've often told people, this is the first year where I have an in school social work that I haven't missed it. I have not wanted to be a school social worker this year for that reason. But boy, can you imagine starting kindergarten or starting a high school right now? Like both of those seem so impossible, but especially kindergarten because kindergarten is so much about learning how to be in school, but you're not even in school. You're at home on a computer. It's just, whew. Anyway. Yeah, so my daughter gets does get to go four days a week and I'm really grateful. Oh, okay, great. My mom got her masks for Christmas, which you know, it's 2020 <laughs> mask for Christmas. And yeah. um, she asked me, she said, did, 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 which she calls her Marmy, did Marmy get you mask when you were a kid for school? Oh, buddy. Oh, yeah. See, I didn't have to wear masks. So, but she yeah. doesn't, I mean, she's in kindergarten. She just thinks they wear masks all the time. It's what you do at school. Yeah. <laughs> what you do. Yeah. So. Um, I, I want to hear more about collaborative problem solving. Cause that seems like that's something that be very helpful both for parenting and for uh, working with kids in school, just across the board. Yeah. Um, tell us more about that. Man, collaborative problem solving, I think is something that, that changed my life as both as a school social worker, but also as a parent. Um, it's something that I figured that I didn't figure out. I learned about as a school social worker and then sort of translated into my work as a parent. Um, collaborative problem solving comes from, um, Massachusetts General Hospital, Dr. Ross Green, who a lot of adoptive families are familiar with, and Stuart Ablon uh, kind of created this thing together. They eventually split. Now there's sort of two strains. Um, but the idea is that kids do well if they can, not because they want to. And it's a really simple idea, but that requires like a fundamental shift in how we do systems. And so like Leanne, when you were talking about educating uh, educators, like talking with teachers about like adoption, things like that, I, I was in my mind, I was chuckling a little bit because a lot of the stuff we try to educate around is like a fundamental shift. It's not like maybe try this or this. It's like, let's rethink our discipline systems and how we see kids who are challenging. It's like, it's not a simple thing. It's a really long-term thing. But the idea is really basic to say kids do well if they can, not because they want to. 
And the reason that challenging behavior shows up, at least according to this model, is because kids show up with lagging skills in some capacity. Maybe they have a hard time regulating their emotions when they get upset. Maybe they have a hard time telling people what's wrong or remembering the order of things to do when they get frustrated. Maybe they have a hard time understanding how their behavior impacts other people. These are essential skills that we need to navigate the world. And there's all sorts of reasons that we might lag behind one of these skills, just like we might be better or worse than our friends at reading. We might be better or worse at our friends than a working memory or you know those kinds of things. Um, and so it's shifting our, our focus and, and trying to figure out exactly what the skills their kids are struggling with the situations in which you're struggling and then trying to find solutions that work for both the kids and for us as the adults or the system or whatever it is to help them move around the problem and get on to success. Um, I love it. I, I teach it a lot. I really, really love talking about cloud problem solving. So uh, it's a big deal, I think, for foster and adoptive families for sure. Will you get a, give us kind of a real life example of what that might look like? Take Johnny and kind of tell us, break it apart. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so, you know, the, 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 we have a video that I show often when we do trainings, maybe we'll show it at the conference. Um, so I don't want to spoil it, but we're going to spoil it. So sorry. that's okay. No, it's okay. When my kiddo moved in, uh, she, I, I wanted to feed her. So she was 11 and she was right about to move in. So she was in her foster home and she's going to move into our, my, our home with, with uh, my oldest kiddo. And um, we we're almost there. And so she was visiting for the weekend and I wanted to be the parent who made really delicious, nutritious food for my kids. And so I tried to feed her raw kale salad for dinner she's 11 and she was like no i'm not i'm not gonna i'm not gonna eat that this isn't food so i'm not gonna eat it for dinner and i told her the thing that parents had told me to say i said listen if you don't eat your vegetables you don't get dessert that's what i said which is a really traditional approach to parenting and so she thought about it for a while and then she took all the kale salad and she stuffed it in her mouth and then she went to the bathroom <laughs> and i had no idea what was about to happen i was a new parent i was stupid or whatever naive and uh, she came back a few minutes later and the kale salad was gone. But not because she ate it, because she stuffed it down the sink, not even the toilet, but the sink and tried to flush it away. So we sat down, we had a conversation with her, or I did around this kale salad thing. And you know, the, it's, the process is like, we try to clarify the kid's concern and then we share our concern as the adult. And then we collaborate on a solution that works for the kiddo's concern and our concern. The first part of that was like, tell me about kale salad dinner and what went wrong. And then she was like, kale salad is disgusting. Raw vegetables are gross. I don't know why you made this for me. I'm willing to eat vegetables, but not this vegetable, not like that. Okay. And then I would share my concern, which is like, you know, I want you to have healthy meals. I want you to try new things. She was like, I'll try new things, but not that. Okay. And then it was about coming up with a solution. And the solution that we came up with, so her concern was like, I don't like raw vegetables. My concern was really about not kale, but around like healthy foods and trying new things. And so our solution was not about vegetables at all, but like we'll have fruit with every meal. And so that's what we did. And it's a solution that still works today. Here we are three years later now, like almost four years later. Wow. Uh, and it still works today. Um, so that's the kind of thing that comes up in clever problem solving. We're trying to like move away from solutions one of the traps that parents find themselves in a lot is dueling solutions. So, you know, I say, you can't go out with your friends tonight. And my kiddo says, yes, I can. I'm going. That's two solutions that are, they're never going to solve each other. We're never going to fix this problem. Instead, if we can get to the uh, concerns under the solutions, well, tell me more about why you want to go with your friends today of all times. And then I'll share with you why I don't really want you to go out right now. How do we get around that now? That gets us to a place where we can get movement. Um, and can help families move through some pretty tough things over time. I, um, I'm not there yet in parenting, but I'm there in um, tantruming. So I get on the floor and yeah. calm the two-year-old down and say, can we use words to figure out what's going on? Because yeah. uh, I think empathy is a big piece to parenting. Oh, um, gosh. But I also often think that as a parent, we want control. Uh-huh, yeah. And we feel and like if we have... If we, we feel like if we have empathy, then we don't get, we lose our control. And yeah. that's, um, but. You know, it's interesting. I, I think about the word control and I think about the word authority. And, you know, I, I think as my kids got older, I, I realized pretty quickly, even before they moved in, like, ultimately, what control do I have over a 16 year old? Like, what am I going to do? If she wants to leave. She's going to leave. Like, I, I'm not going to sit on her at that point. I'm not going to lock her in her room. And so a lot of it's around, like, before she gets to that point where she can just do whatever she wants, 
um, I got to make sure that she has the skills and we have the relationship to push through that really tough stuff. Um, but absolutely. And what I love about collaborative problem solving is, is it doesn't, it doesn't give up any authority as the parent. We still have our authority because if the solution doesn't work for me as the parent, it's not a solution that works for us. That the only difference here is like, we're trying to make sure we have the kid's voice on the table, our kiddo's voice, and we come up with a solution that also works for them. Typically we come up with a solution that works for us, but doesn't work for our kids. And then we have a bigger problem on our hands a lot of the time. Um, but absolutely. So this is a model that allows us to keep that authority and also build the skills like those empathy skills and things like that. Absolutely. Yeah. So you're just pulling out a couple of things. Whenever I was reading about it, I really liked um, the litmus test, just yeah. like the, the, those rules. And so you're talking about it has to work for the parent, has to work for the kid. Can you explain what those, what the criteria is to see if it's a good solution or not? Absolutely. Or so the way to solve the problem. A, yeah, for sure. It's a litmus test is a, is a tool within this model of collaborative problem solving. And it comes towards the end, right? So you, you shared your concern, the kids shared their concern. Now you're working a solution. You've come to a solution and now you apply the litmus test. And it's five questions and it's, does it work for you? So the question there is, does it work for kiddo? And we're going back. We come up with a solution. Does fruit at dinner work for you, kiddo? And she said, well, yeah, fruit at dinner is fine for me. I just told you it was, so it works for me. Great. It's a really nice one because sometimes kids will tell us things that they just want to get out. They want to get out of the conversation. They'll tell us whatever we want to hear uh, just in the conversation. But oftentimes when they do that, their solution isn't great and it doesn't really work for them. Um, I think about my kiddo. She... Uh, was in summer camp and they had to go to a park. And on the way back to the park, she decided to go to the gas station because she was hungry, <laughs> which is not a thing you can do. You can't just go to the gas station. And she got in trouble for it. And we had the conversation and she said, her solution was, I just won't do that again. But if you went there because you're hungry, how does just saying you're not gonna do it again solve being hungry? It doesn't, so it doesn't really work for you. So that's the first one. The first one is, does it work for you? The second one is, does it work for me as the parent? And if it works for me as a parent, great. We've got two out of two, we're gonna continue on. But then again, it's a time to think about it. Okay, you know, fruit at dinner. Yeah, well, that works. I don't care about kale salad. What I care about is you're getting some healthy food. You're trying new things. Sure, it works for me. You're thinking out loud. So it's, does it work for you? Does it work for me? Uh, is it possible? Can we do it? And so, you know, like in our fruit situation, it was like, well, do we have any fruit that we can have for dinner tonight? And, you know, we did at the time. Uh, the fourth one is, does it bring anything else up? So if we focus on this solution, um, does that bring up anything else that we have to think about or adjust to? So for example, this comes up with siblings a lot. If we do this solution, does it create any problems for this other sibling in the house that we have to then attend to? And then the fifth one is, when can we come back and take a look to see if our solution worked? Does it work for you? Does it work for me? Does it bring anything else up? Uh, is it realistic? And then when can we come back and see if it worked or not? That's the litmus test. It's great for parents, just like it is for kids. I really like that. Like, I, it's like, I just need to like have that on a sticky note somewhere. Really? Uh, yeah. yeah. Seems like it would work good for husbands too. <laughs> well, you know, it does. Honestly, it's so good for me. I mean, yes, absolutely. But it, when I, cause I get mad, like I, you know, my kiddo pushes my buttons, like kids, can do and I'll get mad and I'll lose a side of myself and I'll come up with solutions that feel really good to say like I'm going to take the door off the hinges but then mm -hmm. if I apply the litmus test to that it just falls apart as a solution because it doesn't work for me really like I'm going to be mad I'm going to take the door off I guess but it doesn't work for my kiddo I don't even know how to take a door off the hinges it's just like a problem after problem so it's a bad solution the litmus test helps us figure out I think see as parents how often we come up with just bad solutions when we're mad. Mm -hmm. you know? So I was going to shift gears. Do you have any other thoughts or things about the, the school realm or the problem solving realm? You know, if you, um, if you were to go to thinkkids.org, it's a website that, that sort of puts out uh, collaborative problem solving. It's the home organization. They have a resource there, which I really love to bring to school meetings. And it's a, it's a, it's called a thinking skills inventory. And if you can Google that probably in collaborative problem solving, you can probably find it. But it's a really, it's a one page document that has a bunch of different skills on it. And what I really like to do as a school social worker now as a parent is bring that list with me to meetings, IEP meetings, uh, re-entry meetings, discipline meeting, whatever it is, um, conferences, things like that, and sit down and have that present. Because a lot of the work that we have to do as parents, I think, is to help school staff understand that our kids are trying as hard as they can. 
They want to be successful. And oftentimes there's things coming up in the way and it's not about will, it's not willful defiance. It's about some other aspect of a skill. And so let's focus on that so we can have some empathy for this kiddo who's working so hard. Um, so maybe that's one thing. Check out the thinking skills inventory. It can be a really good resource for sure. That's great. I'll definitely be looking that up. <laughs> All right. Um, so to shift gears then, um, that you're a member of the subcommittee on children's mental health in Minnesota. Um, and then just saw that you have a, a passion and another degree in public policy. Yeah. Um, so if you can share with us um, now, instead of the direct working with people, more of that macro, that high view of what's being done in the, the policy world, um, just kind of what's happening and then what changes that you would like to see or are working towards, um, particularly that can make a big difference for foster children. Absolutely. You know, I, I think these days on a national level, I, I guess I don't know so much about federal policy, but in Minnesota, we're working a lot on like this thing called the Quality Parenting Initiative. And so in Minnesota, the pendulum has swung towards like making sure we're working towards reunification in all cases, and also trying to place kiddos with their biological kin, people they have some sort of familial relationship with already. Um, I think that makes a lot of sense to me. The Quality Parenting Initiative too is really about how do we build better systems for families who are system involved. So kids who are in foster care, uh, they have biological families who they may or may not be able to return to. Um, but even if they can't, how do we make sure that they can maintain relationships and that foster families and resource families can be really supportive of this biological relationship in an appropriate and safe way moving forward? I think that's like the next thing. It's really hard, really messy work. It's not clean. Uh, there's never an easy day when you're doing it. It can get really, really complicated really fast. But boy, every adultee, I feel like, not every adult adoptee, but so much of the knowledge that I've been able to learn from adult adoptees has been around the importance of maintaining connection to biological family when it's safe and appropriate to do so. Um, and so I think that's a, that's a major area. I think there's a lot of organizations around the states and in Minnesota, there's one called Foster Advocates that is uh, former foster youth led that really is leading the charge on how do we create a better system for kids who are in foster care to help them actualize their goals and to live out the things that, that they wanna do. Um, so those are some bigger things in Minnesota working on like more family preservation stuff around like we have the African-American Family Preservation Act trying, it's kind of like ICWA, the Indian Child Welfare Act, but for uh, black populations and making sure that we are not, not that we are doing as much as we need to be able to do to keep black families together because there's been a history of separating black families in the foster care system. Yes. That's pretty exciting. Yeah. Um, so is Minnesota, um, so North Carolina is a closed adoption state. So it's, so what that means is um, once you're, you've adopted, it's the, the adoptive parent's decision about whether or not there's a birth parent or birth family relationship. So does Minnesota have that rule as well in working towards birth parent relationships or? That's a good question. You know, I don't think I'd be able to answer that question. I don't think I know. Uh, I mean, you know, one of the, one of the weirdest symbolic things that happens, at least in Minnesota, when you finalize an adoption through foster or through wherever, I think, is that you as the adopted parent replace the birth parent and the birth certificate. It was the weirdest thing I've ever seen. Um, so I, my guess is it's probably leans more towards club, but I, I don't know. I think that's out of my knowledge base. So I'm okay. going to that one. <laughs> I just didn't know in, when y'all, when you're talking about initiatives with birth families um, and that's actually um, you know, this conference is put on by post-adoption success coach. Um, right. And so my husband and I have been, working with that, um, the service, and we have really um, loved it. And um, one of our goals is um, to um, be able to create and maintain safe relationships with um, birth families of our children. So we have three adopted children and all three come from different birth families. So we have yeah. very complicated yeah. to navigate. Um, and so that has been really a big piece of post-adoption success coach, which is putting on this conference. So, absolutely. Um, all right. So it's, if you had a magic wand or magic scissors to cut through all the red tape, what policy change would you want to implement immediately to help kids? Immediately to help kids. Ah, boy. You know, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm going to say this one. I don't know if I, if I thought about it long, if I'd commit to this one or not, but I had a really interesting conversation with the director of foster advocates in Minnesota a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about 
uh, college tuition for kids who are in foster care. And I think that's the one that I've been thinking about the most recently, like as a state or as states or communities, what, like, what moral obligations do we have to kids in care? Because so Minnesota, the way child protection works, um, and I know folks who are listening are not just like foster adoptive folks, but um, is it state administered but county run? So all the counties do things a little bit different. 87 counties, 11 tribes, and it's all a little bit different in every single county. Why? Because the state county system made the decision to separate the families, probably for good reasons a lot of, in most cases, um, I feel like we have an obligation to make sure we're doing as much as we possibly can to ensure the success of kids long-term, whatever that is, whether it's college, whether it's trade school, whatever it is, but making sure that they have access to that in some way that is either like extraordinarily affordable or free or something uh, because it's such a big deal. You know, so I've been thinking about that recently, but frankly, this isn't maybe going to impact like the immediate lives and like, I feel better about myself kind of way, but rethinking discipline systems in schools, I think is a big deal for a lot of our kids. Uh, and I'm at reimagining the way that we see kids and not seeing them as willfully defined, but really seeing those kids are working hard and for whom there are things coming up. Um, I think that would make a huge difference in both the short term and long term, even though it's maybe not that glossy. And it's not something that legislators are going to get behind, perhaps, but I think it would make a big impact. Yes. Um, I want to um, tell you, I think North Carolina provides college for adoptees if you've been adopted after 12 they yeah. provide college for you as yeah well, as and that's, well. that's a federal program so that's true okay. for, for kiddos who are adopted after the age of 12 and in minnesota it's different so every state does a little bit differently so in minnesota you have to be age 16 and it's i don't know why it's just what minnesota has decided for some minnesotan reason who knows um so for sure there are programs like that and i and i you know i, I think it's just encouraging just ensuring that i'm like really helping our kids make the leap from from youth to adulthood mm -hmm. uh, and being creative about those things. I mean, you know, we finalized the adoption. I was, I was just saying uh, when my oldest was 17, like a couple weeks before she turned 18. And, you know, we had some time to transition. We had some assistance to transition, uh, but it's still a hard leap to go from being a kid, quote unquote, to being this adult and what do I do now? And really yeah. focusing on that transition, I think is a big deal. Even if we have kids who like, you know, as you mentioned, like kiddos who came to us when they were really young, like that transition is still going to be a big deal for them, you know? Yeah. Um, now in North Carolina as well, I know Michigan might have, uh, Michigan, Minnesota, Minnesota, sorry. Yeah, the Michigan, sorry. Um, <laughs> the, y'all might have this program as well, but we have an 18 to 21 program. Yeah. Do y'all have that as well? We do, yeah. So you have to be working or in school, you know, working full time or in school, and you get us some assistance and things like that for sure. And uh, yeah, I, those are great programs, absolutely, um, for sure. And yeah, we have those in Minnesota too, and it's been really helpful. I mean, I I can't imagine how we would have done it otherwise, frankly. <laughs> uh, and um, it's worked out pretty good for our kids. We also have a lot of great organizations in Minnesota who are foster oriented, who have you know made connections with our kids and. Um, I've been working hard to support them and get apartments and things like that, which is amazing. And I think that's what we should be doing for kiddos who spend time in care because it's such a big deal, man. Mm -hmm. Well, it's such a big deal. And um, it can sometimes, unfortunately, be a cycle. And so how do we help kids, you know, of my three birth children or of my three adopted children, all three of their birth moms were in care. Yeah. Uh, and so how do we, you know, that's a big piece of breaking that cycle. It is a big piece of breaking that cycle. And it's so complicated, right? There's so many reasons why those things happen. But it's, yes. You know, I, I one of the things I think about a lot and is in Minnesota, at least, and I'm sure this is true in other states, is we get a, a, an adoption subsidy for adopting from foster care. So every month we get a certain amount of money to, to support the kids. It's tax-free money that's supposed to go to them. And it's not insignificant. Um, I don't know how people raise kids without like direct financial assistance from the government because it's so expensive. But I think also about like how much money is going to us instead of services for biological families, you know? And um, I love my girls and I wouldn't change it. Like they've taught me so much and I've grown so much. And at the heart of my heart, the deepest part of my heart, I think kids should be with their biological families if it can be safe. And so what can we do? Like what new ways, what avenues, what cra crazy things can we imagine to support families to heal and get to a place to break those cycles so that, you know, 
we can avoid a lot of this stuff. I don't know. I don't know those things. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of big questions that, yeah, ah, right. that's hard. <laughs> Blown in the wind. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, are there any like just specific organizations or like places to start if people are interested in being part of policy conversations or advocating, you know, beyond their family, whether it be local, state, federal, just where, where are places to start for people that would like to be part of those conversations? Yeah, you know, I imagine, so in Minnesota, we have a great organization called MinAdopt, Minnesota Adopt, and they really are like the quarterbacks for adoption, adoptive work in Minnesota. And they do some advocacy work, but a lot of what they do is they facilitate like online, like Facebook groups for families, for parents, which is where a lot of the stuff happens, I think. Um, I imagine that's true for a lot of states. Not every state has those things. Some states have a more robust system, some states less. But finding that organization and connecting there, I think, is a great place to start. Also, you know, finding organizations that are youth-led or former foster youth-led or adult adoptee-led and really plugging into them and helping to amplify their voices through time, through money, whatever that is, I think is a big deal too. Um, when I talk with adult adoptees who are willing to share their stories and help us do better, I'm always blown away and in awe because their stories are so profoundly uh, important. They, they just have such an insight into the systems that I can only see from my own little angle but that they've actually lived and experienced for a very long time. Um, so that's one thing I would maybe suggest is really trying to find a foster or a adult adoptee led program organization and seeing what they're talking about and just listening to, to the stories of folks who have been in the system and have lived to tell the tale as it were. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great suggestion. And that's, yeah, just hearing those, those firsthand voices, I think is something that gets forgotten a lot. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so then kind of like bouncing off of the, the work being done policy-wise, then you're also kind of involved with educating other professionals um, that you kind of have all of the, the professional development and kind of conferencing gigs as well as um, doing supervision for new social workers or people working towards clinical licensure. Um, what changes have you seen in that in terms of just what, what are people hungry for? Where's the conversation going among professionals um, and just the changes yeah. that are happening there? You know, I'd be curious if, if, you've, if you've seen this too, Lauren, but you know, when I, when I was in grad school and it hasn't been that long, but it's, you know, it's been, okay, it's been kind of, it's been like 10 years. That's weird to think about. But when mm -hmm. I was in grad school, we were really talking a lot about attachment and trauma. And I, and I, I think we still are. But I feel like nowadays we're spending more time. So I teach in the MSW program at, at the University of Minnesota. And we spend a lot more time now talking about racial and social equity and bias and things like that. And that's not something I think we really talked about a whole lot when I was in grad school. And so I see a shift. Like we're still, we still have the trauma piece, the trauma component. But now we're shifting a bit to also talking about like who we are and how who we are impacts the work that we're doing in a way that's a little deeper than maybe it was when I was a student. Mm -hmm. um, so I see that a lot and really in, in that being a focus for sure. Yeah. Um, I've been seeing just like the, the, the trauma-informed movement taking off here. Like yeah. whenever I was, um, say, it, doing my education and then just starting off, that really wasn't part of the conversation at all. Okay. And now it seems like whenever I'm looking at, you know, just professional development, continuing ed things, that is everywhere like that is everything that people are talking about um and now like the racial justice pieces is starting to come in there and at least in the world of education um which i'm in a little bit more than general mental health um that it's in north carolina at least like that is like just starting it's like you know this summer is kind of what just started pushing that into the forefront yeah um but it's every year I, I just get excited with like, yes, like pe people are starting to get it and the word is spreading. And <laughs> right. Absolutely. And I, and I feel the same way too. And it's exploding up here too, the, the conversations about trauma. And maybe I have a, I feel like we've been talking about for a long time because like social workers have been talking about a long time and it's yeah. just now getting to mainstream. Maybe that's it. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think the next, the next conversation has to be, well, then what do we do about it? You know, we're trauma informed, but what do we do to like, break that cycle of trauma, Leanne, as you were saying, you know, so we don't have to keep shifting all these things. We can actually like go upstream a little bit. I think mm -hmm. that maybe is the next thing, which is going to be exciting to talk about. 
like, okay, we've got the awareness. Now, how do we get to the prevention? Like, yeah. let's go ahead and <laughs> make some impacts. Um, yeah, this is like a side tangent, but now, but um, did you see the proposal that California put out with their big, so um, like with all the stuff that Dr. Nadine Burke Harris is doing out there, they just released like last month, I think I was reading it greedily, like as soon as it came out that they have put out a full like California state initiative that is yeah. across the board. This is what needs to happen in mental health, in social services, in education, in medical, you know, primary practice and had like the guidelines for everybody. Yeah. And it was like, great. I can't wait to see how that well, goes. Now when can go national? Talking, oh gosh, it's so exciting. I think she was talking too about, or California has been talking about um, doing like a, almost like a trauma assessment for like their students. Like it's like on, on global level, I thought is something that I heard about. I don't know if that's real or not, but um, which is great because it was something we talked about in, the, in charter schools I was involved with. Wouldn't it be great to sit down with a family and get a sense of like where their kiddo is in terms of trauma? And I mean, it's kind of, you know, it's easier said than done, but like really shifting the conversation, moving away from stigma so that we can be more open about it and be honest about where we all are and mm -hmm. what we can do to support one another. I, I love that. And, and that's really exciting to see for sure. Yes. So that's one of the conversations that's happening in our county a lot, where as soon as people started learning all the, the trauma-informed stuff, that it was just like, great, should we be giving all of our kids like the ACEs screener? It's like, no, like school's probably not the appropriate setting for that. And then the big thing was, if you have that information, what are you going to do with it? It's like, if the the supports aren't already in place, then, you know, where are you making the referrals? Do we have like the infrastructure and are you right. ready to handle what, what you find out? Um, well, and I think for a lot of our schools too, at least it was my experience in schools that we would get so bogged down in trying to focus on the root cause, like the story behind a thing that we would sort of get overwhelmed. Well, what do we do about it now? And one of the things that I like about collaborative problem solving is one of the ideas is that you know, we can't do much about what's already happened. Like we can't go back in time and change those things. What we can do is adjust from now on. And so it's like, those stories are important and that's part of healing absolutely. But some of it doesn't matter that much in terms of like the skill building we have to do now. Yeah. And I think that's important for school staff to know too, is like, let's be trauma informed. And also part of that trauma in, like information or being informed around that mm -hmm. is not just seeing our kiddos only as their trauma, but yes. also then like, that means we respond to them in different ways. And I think that's a really important thing too. I love that. Well, and also, you know, responding to them to different ways and then not just, again, not, not talking about just academics, but the, the soft skills, you know, I, I read a, a toddler book. I mean, cause that's the world I'm in. And she talked so much about like kindergarten readiness is so much more about the soft skills is more about memorizing your ABCs and your one, two, threes. And, but you talked about that with your daughter as well as those soft skills. Um, but, you know, my husband and I, we did a, um, a fetal alcohol spectrum disorder training last week. And a lot of those soft skills are not there because the, because the brain is different, whether that's because of substance or that's because of trauma. So again, like what, what's the, the end goal right. for, for kids who have experienced trauma and again do we have those things set in place the soft skills just as much as the academic skills yeah absolutely it's, so it's moving from just that core education to both the like the we need to work on prevention but then also just that resiliency and the skill building and just the the what's next not fixate on yeah. the problem but prevention right. of the problem and then solutions forward <laughs> right and i and i think too it's a lot about like you know, when I, when I think about the soft skills, I don't think it's necessarily has to be about like, this is the time in class where we're going to teach you how to do conflict resolution. It's like, we're going to, we're going to actually change the way we solve problems in school. So if you wear your hood up in class, like you're not supposed to do, we're going to change the way we interact with you around that and not just punish you for wearing your hood up, but actually engage you in the conversation around why the hood is up, why it's a problem for us as a school, because that's building the soft skills, but that's a fundamental change, right? We're moving away from detentions and suspensions and all those things that we know push kids out of the system and create those cycles to something that is more about building those things and also moving us towards these educational goals that you know we all have for our kids too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It takes intentionality and it's hard. 
And it's, it's hard. It's not fast. And I can't imagine being a teacher with a lot of kids in my class and being able to really focus and give each kid the intentionality that that, that takes. And so, yeah. And I think that's part of the reimagining is maybe it shouldn't just be on that one teacher, right? We're trying to come up with systems that do better for our kids. One of the things about collaborative problem solving that teachers will find is that at the start, it feels really overwhelming. Like how am I supposed to do all this with my kids? But when I have 30 of them, but part of it is like, you don't have 30 challenging kids. You have some kids who are high flyers and some kids are doing pretty well and the kids are doing okay. Like you don't have to do collaborative problem solving with them because they already have the skills. It's the kids who specifically are struggling to respond to traditional discipline that we need to shift our focus on. And, and one of the things we often say is like, it takes a lot less time to solve the problem than it does to deal with the chronic consequences of the problem taking place again and again in your classroom. We can spend 20 minutes now, we might save hours down the road. And, and that's a hard shift, but it, it's true for a lot of our teachers to try it out. All right, so shifting gears again, um, I think it's really interesting that you also are working as a hospital social worker. And that's something that I do not know very much about at all. Um, and then you also said you're doing kind of like an on-call night shift. Um, yeah. so is that more, is that more like emergency kind of things or are you with inpatient uh, kids or what, so what does that look like? The hospital social work is a, is a unique thing. I, it's something that's very different from any other social work I've done, especially on the on-call and weekend. So we'll work a regular shift in a hospital, but it's on the weekends and the evenings when there's fewer people in the building, there's fewer hospital staff. And a lot of it's kind of like band-aid work. But really, it's like we focus on doing mental health crisis assessments with kids and families. We focus on um, bereavement. So when a child passes in the hospital uh, and we focus on resourcing and things like that. But those are kind of the two biggest ones that we focus on, on in our roles on call social workers. Yeah. So when I was thinking of something that you could share with the listeners, um, it was that no one wants to ever imagine themselves with a hospitalized child. Yeah. Um, and so then I imagine parents are overwhelmed and reactive. Um, so with seeing that, what advice would you give to parents to be proactive in that sort of situation and to help prevent medical trauma for both their child and themselves? Yeah, it's a really, you know, I was thinking about this question as I was driving around today uh, doing my errands because I, I think it's a really big question that I think about all the time in the hospital setting uh, because we the, the emergency room is so under-equipped to really respond well to deep-seated long-term stuff, like our, at least in Minnesota. So our emergency room is really about triage. It's about trying to figure out if the, this kiddo who's in front of us represents an active threat to themselves or to somebody else. And if they do, then we can recommend for things like inpatient placement where they'll go stay somewhere and work on some things or not. Uh, and most of the time it's not. Most of the times our kids don't meet the criteria for inpatient and they go home which is its own problem for our families because they're coming to the emergency room for a reason and we haven't solved the problem. Uh, the reality I think for a lot of our families is there's such precious little support out there that's meaningful and is accessible at the time that you need it. Um, in Minnesota, at least in the metro counties, I don't know about outstate Minnesota, but we have uh, like children's mental health crisis teams. And so there's a number you can call uh, to get in touch with somebody who's very, usually a clinical social worker or some sort of psychologist or somebody who has some advanced training and who can de-escalate or talk you through a really complicated situation, help you make decisions. Uh, in non-COVID times, they would even come out to your house and do some sort of intervention right there. Now it's all over the phone. Uh, so, you know, if you live in a community that has something like that, really tapping into that and, and like seeing what you can do before you call 911. The reality is for most of our kids who come to the hospital, they're going to go home because they don't meet inpatient criteria, which is a good thing because that means if you're going inpatient, it means that like you might not be alive tomorrow if you don't, or you might try to harm somebody. And not just like, I want to like hit my mom and dad, but like really, really harm them, like with a weapon or something like that. And so if you're not, if your kiddo isn't meeting that criteria, that's, that's a good thing, even though it means that like you may not be getting the break or support that you need. Um, you know, so there's that, but also I, I think parents just really being, uh, managing their expectations around what's going to happen at the emergency room if they decide to go to a hospital for their kiddos and understanding like what the role of the emergency room is and is not, uh, because it's a very narrow role. And a lot of our parents get really frustrated with that and totally understandably. Um, but it's a, you know, it's a hard thing to navigate. Okay. 
Yes, um, we do have mental health mobile crisis in oh, this okay. area. Um, so people that you can call a number and they'll come to your home and you know do the assessments and things to try to avoid the emergency room. Um, and we we have a lot had of great. Go. <laughs> yeah, well, we've had mixed success with it. You know, um, both my kiddos have we've used them at different points, and I've had a lot of families use them. And some families love mobile crisis. Some families will never call them again. Uh, we've called EMS one time, uh, maybe twice actually, and um, neither time was it helpful. It was more harmful than helpful in our situation. And uh, but then it's like, well, what else do we do? Um, so just doing your best to tap into those things. In Minnesota, we have MinAdopt, and one of the things that MinAdopt offers is this thing called the Help Program, and they'll connect. They'll they'll get you a stabilization worker, but they'll also connect you with folks who are like trauma and adoption competent therapists who can help you as parents. Uh, so again, like getting back to those resources, trying to figure out whatever that organization is in your state and like glomming onto them and trying to figure out what resources they can offer before the crisis happens. Okay. My thing is I'm always like in crisis, I'm always like, now I got to get help. And really I should have been getting help six months earlier before the crisis was happening. I still got to learn that one. <laughs> so now do we want to um, do the switch then to your family and more of that story. I don't know, Leanne, if you wanted to ask more about that. <laughs> um, sure. <laughs> Do you want to, uh, you've shared a decent amount with about your family and how that um, came about, about um, but, um, and I think this might be one of your top, your, what you're talking about at the conference, um, but the challenges of, and joys of transracial fostering and adopting. Yeah. You know, we, um, so I am white and Puerto Rican. Um, my two adopted daughters are black. My wife is black and my stepson is black. And um, so, and I'm also like a convert to Islam. I'm not a very good Muslim. I don't follow very well, but um, my kids and my family are all Christian of some, of some sort. And so we've got a lot of like trans cultural stuff going on in our family system. Um, I met my girls through school social work. I was a school social worker at a school that my oldest graduated from and then she would come back and visit a lot and all the staff were like, you gotta meet this kid, you gotta meet this kid. And we sort of developed this relationship. I would mentor, like we would go to basketball games and get lunch sometimes um, and she'd come and visit the school and she was in the foster care system and you know, it just sort of made sense at the time. Um, it's really, I think, a, a challenge. And I, I frankly don't know if I'm always doing my, my girls the best service possible because it's such a complicated thing. It seems like so much of that transracial work is about myself and about my own stuff and who I am as a parent and how I'm speaking for my, not for, uh, speaking in advocacy for my kiddos and things like that. Um, it's a really humbling experience for sure. You know, there's a lot of moments where I've had to sit back and say, yeah, that behavior or that belief that I had, I can see where I learned that, but it's not supportive of my family now. And I've got to really shift on that. Um, I think it's, it's really helped me a lot, just grow as a human being. And uh, it's one of those things I'm eternally grateful to my girls for. I wish they hadn't had to been the teachers of that, um, but I'm thankful that they, that they were and that they continue to be for sure. Um, um, it's interesting. I have had a conversation with our, um, post-adoption success coach about um, my, we don't have transracial adoption um, just because those are the kids that came to us, but um, she made the comment, she said, all adoption is transcultural. Totally. And, you know, and, and it's just so real. And so it doesn't matter whether they're the same race or not, it's transcultural because you're taking. Absolutely. Yeah. So we were down in Alabama in November and I was doing a, a couple of days of workshops where their DHR staff, which is their like um, human services statewide organization. And there was an online part where folks all over the country were tuning in, but that wasn't what it was. It was building bridges, like transcultural, transracial families. But the premise was exactly that, that even if you're of the same race, even if you're the same faith, like Muslims do it differently. If I meet a Muslim on the street, we're gonna have a different version of Islam. If I meet a Puerto Rican out there, my idea of what a Puerto Rican is, is totally, like, I don't speak Spanish. I've been to Puerto Rico once. It's just a different thing. And that's true. So it's all transcultural. My kids and I, like, it's transracial, but I don't understand much about kid culture these days. And so there's cultural work that's there to be done there, socioeconomic stuff. But every time you, you know, you have a new family that you're making together, or you're building from scratch as it were, it's totally transcultural. I get down with that for sure. Yeah. 
So have there been any um, resources that you've leaned into, books, podcasts, websites? Um, yeah, there, you know, there, there's a lot of, a lot of good stuff out there, I think, and um, a lot more coming online. There's, there's stuff for folks who are at every stage of the game, whether you've been doing this kind of transcultural work for a long time, or you're just trying to figure this out right now. And you're like, oh, maybe there is something more to it. Um, if you, NPR has a few really good, oh no, The Atlantic, I think it is, has a few really good like short videos about talking with kids about race. Um, there is Harvard has the implicit association test, which I think is a really interesting thing. There may be some, there's like take it with a grain of salt kind of thing. But as a as an opportunity to explore and with ourselves, uh, like what it means to be thinking across cultures, it's a nice place to start because it will get you really thinking about some of the implicit biases you hold. A um, lot of great books out there. Jennifer Everhart has a book that I really love called Biased, uh, where she talks a lot about the implicit biases that we hold, how there's like biological reasons we hold them and what we can do about it. Um, you know, I think a lot of it depends too on, on the age of your kiddos. You know, if, if my kids were younger, we'd be watching a lot of Sesame Street. Sesame Street always sits out of the park with the work that they do with oh, yes. our kiddos, you know, Muppets who are in adoptive care, Muppets who have family members who are within substance use, who are incarcerated. It's just amazing what they do. Um, and so really tapping in and like being vulnerable and being curious about like what, let's watch Sesame Street Day and learn about it together. I don't know. Right. Um, for sure. I'm curious, yeah. I guess I'd be curious about like for toddlers, like are there things that you found helpful? Um, more in more in talking about cultural, just like uh, more in talking about adoption. I think that's been okay. the biggest thing in terms of it, just making that a normal thing for us in our family, the word adoption. Um, yeah. And, you know, kids read about princesses and, um, right. and dragons and tractors, and they need to have that adoption word in there too, because that's part of their stories. And so like, yeah. So what we've talked about more is like children's books. I've been kind of on a rampage of figuring out which children's books to just have in our library. Um, and, and that's part of the education with my daughter's teacher too, is that um, what, what children's books do you need to, you know, and, and how does adoption just become a part of our common language um, it, as a family? Because that's how we, how we became a family. Um, well, and I love that too, because it, so much of it, I think is like, wouldn't it have been great if the families who, and maybe they did, they tried, but the families who came before your family were also doing that. So there already were adoption books in the classroom. Right. And that representation piece is so important. Um, and so doing that good work now will help our families for generations to come. Sure. I love that. Right. And to continue to, to, to normalize it, uh, yeah. because it, we adopted from foster care, but there's lots of ways to adopt and families look different with or without adoption and they don't always look the exact same and so that that's a that's a, a transcultural reality is that all families um look different and so it goes back to what lauren talked about in terms of inclusion of families um whether wherever that may be um in minnesota we're we're launching this uh next month i think a uh sort of an equity book club, as it were. And we're reading a book called uh, A Good Time for the Truth, which is an, a collection of essays specifically about Minnesota, race in Minnesota. And so we'll be inviting child protection workers to join that. I imagine in a lot of states, there may be book groups or things like that, especially in the Zoom age. It's a lot easier to like find folks who want to learn together. And so maybe it's the case like, you know, if you're, if you're in a community where you're mostly online or you have that online community, get three or four folks together, find a book to read by an adult adoptee or a book about some transcultural practice or something and that's a little bit outside of your comfort zone and just dig in and be vulnerable and like go in with open eyes and open heart and see what you find out on the other side. Might not be a bad idea to place to start. Um, well, Ed, do you have anything else that you want to share with us um, before we kind of wrap up? Oh gosh, you know, the, I wish my wife was here because she deserves a lot of this credit. So when I adopted, I was a single parent and um, you know, the, well, we, the joke is, uh, I don't know if it's even a joke, but oftentimes we talk about prospective adoptive parents think about adoption in terms of like rainbows and unicorns. Uh -huh. And I like to think that um, I was pretty, pretty aware of what I was about to walk into, but man, it's been so much harder than I ever mm -hmm. thought it could possibly be. And there's been days that have been like, just days that it couldn't get any worse. And there've been days that couldn't get any better. And I think that's true for a lot of parents, whether you like make your kiddos or adopt your kiddos, um, but for folks who are listening, like, you know, one of the things I think is really important is we, we do our best to maintain and find community wherever it is. 
And if we're doing these journeys around transcultural work, then we're finding folks who are on the same journey who want to start that journey with us. Because it's really hard work. Parenting is so lonely sometimes. Transcultural parenting, adoptive parenting, so lonely. So the more we can find folks to like egg us on and to carry us through when things are down, I think is is to our is to our benefit and to our, ultimately our kids' benefit, I suppose. Um, so I don't know. It's a journey. It, adoption it is. journey, parenting is a journey. It's all a journey. Learning is and a the, and the stuff around transcultural work. It's never too late to start. You don't have to be a pro professional. You don't have to be an expert. Be uncomfortable. That's how you get to comfort is by being uncomfortable first. So don't be afraid when you spin the wheels at first and say something stupid. Apologize for it. Repair it. Move on. You learn something and you can do it again. It's okay. It's it's all right. Our kids will see that you're trying and that you're making a, an effort to do this. And that's going to mean something. Even if they can't say it at the time, it's going to mean something for them long term. Yeah, it's uncomfortable. But so is adoption. I mean, I think that's, yeah. I think that's the reality is there's lots of... Point. I never dreamed about just the conversations that we're going to have um, right. as a parent. Because as a parent who was a foster care, I thought my goal is to keep this child safe. And then yeah. we adopted her and I was like, oh, I actually have to parent this child for a long time. I got to figure this out. Oh, shoot. I have no clue what I'm doing. And so yeah. I, I think that's a good you know, a good place to stay for, for all things. For there, there was a moment not long ago where it, I don't know if I never thought about it, but like, this is a forever thing. Like, you know, there's never not going to be a forever thing, but like, these girls are going to be my girls until I die. <laughs> and there's moments where like the reality of that just feels almost overwhelming because it's like, what does that even mean? Uh, and it's, I don't know, you know, I, I've never been a biological parent. Adoptive parenting is the only, and step parenting are the only parent kinds of parenting I know. Um, but yeah, it can really feel, it can really be overwhelming that we're, we're in our kids' lives for as long as we're alive and which means we have a lot of time, but it also means like, let's get started and get somewhere yeah. exciting with the kiddos, you know? Yeah. So, well, Ed, we are grateful that you were here with us, Lauren. Thank you for hosting with me tonight. Um, and, uh, we hope that you, if you are an adopt, a post-adoptive family, um, in this community that you will, um, go and look up. The conference that um, is happening, you can find more um, at postadoptionsuccesscoach.org. Um, so thank you both. Thank you so much. It's been great. And thank you, both. you for inviting me. It was very nice to meet you. This has been Friends of Foster Care, a podcast of Fostering Hope Catawba. For more information, visit www.fosteringhopecatawba.com. Thanks for tuning in.